Let's uh, hear the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree. I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting towards us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and all the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tonya. Good morning, Waypoint Church. Again, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Peter. I have the joy of serving as an associate pastor, church planning resident here at Waypoint. And this morning, we are jumping into the book of Jeremiah. Before we get there, I, something I love is origin stories. Um, the stories of how people or businesses or organizations began. Uh, any of you listen to the NPR podcast, How I Built This? It, it tells origin stories of 
businesses or companies that were built from the ground up. I find these stories intriguing because they kind of humanize the journey. It takes some of the most super successful people or businesses or brands, and, and one of the things you hear as you listen to these stories is you pick up on that it's often an ordinary moment where an idea began. Maybe it was a commute to a regular nine-to-five job where somebody had an idea. Maybe it was working uh, the, the factory shift and they thought, I think this could be done better. Uh, maybe it was a, a lunch meeting where they're just having a simple conversation about something else and an idea comes to mind. And what happens is these origin stories, the stories of how a business, a brand, a person, how it all started becomes part of the DNA of an organization. And as you listen to some of these stories, you hear that it, the origin stories are almost a, a stake in the ground that threads of the organization's DNA, it just is woven throughout the history and life and organism. And, and, and so the origin story becomes a stake into the ground to which threads of themes are woven. I say all this because in many ways, that's what we just read in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah's origin story. It's the calling of the prophet Jeremiah. It's the here in its retelling are threads of truth, theological themes that are woven throughout this book. The Lord tells Jeremiah in verse 10, See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow. But not just that, to build and to plant. You see, Jeremiah is called by the Lord to proclaim a hard message. A hard message of destruction and judgment that sin has consequences. That the covenant had been broken. And so in many ways, as we jump into this book, the heavy words of uprooting and destruction can't be removed from the promise of new life to build, and to plant. I think it's important for us to hear this as we jump in this morning, that I think this is part of why the book of Jeremiah is important for us to read. Not just because it's the largest book in our Bible, but because it's here in these words, in these pages, we're forced to grapple with the weightiness of our sin. And as we do... We are pointed to the glory of God's mercy and the weightiness of our hope. So as we jump in this morning, I just want to give a few pieces of background to the book of Jeremiah that I think can help us have a framework as we walk through it. The first is that the book of Jeremiah is not chronological. 
We saw this in the Gospel of Matthew that we just wrapped up last week. Sometimes the biblical writers are compiling information in a thematic way rather than a chronological way. So as you, uh, maybe as you read through this, I encourage you to read through the book of Jeremiah because we're going to take a really big picture over the next few weeks doing large sections at a time. I encourage you to take some time and read through um, a few chapters each week. And, and you'll find, I thought we were talking about um, right now, and now we're in the future where Jerusalem's falling. Just remember that it's not chronological, but it's thematic. Uh, the second piece of background is that prophecy is poetic. And I am someone who really appreciates poetry. Um, when I was studying at the University of Edinburgh, what part of uh, my writing was on the area of the role of imagination in faith formation. And I think uh, one of the exciting things as we jump into the book of Jeremiah is it's full of imagination. It's full of images and metaphors that are meant to take a, a hard message. Judgment's coming. Sin has consequences. But it uses images that are provocative, that are meant to do more than give an intellectual message, but to speak to the heart. And so as we read through this, we'll find pictures and images that are often metaphorical. The last piece of background I'm going to give is that Jeremiah is called to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, at the time that Jeremiah is called to uh, minister to the kingdom of Judah and to proclaim this message of coming judgment, uh, there are three main political powers at play. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been uh, invaded by the Assyrians. And so you have the Assyrians up north. You also have the kingdom of Babylon up north. So as we, as we just heard in chapter 1, this picture of a boiling pot coming from the north, that's the kingdom of Babylon. In the, in the south, we have Egypt, which is another kind of political world power at the time. And so you have these three uh, main world powers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. And the land of Israel was a bit of a no-man's land. It was kind of up for grabs. Who's going to be the political power to take power of this land? And so one of the things we see all throughout the book of Jeremiah is, will the people turn for help to the nations, or will they turn to the Lord? Well, that's a little bit of background. Let's jump into Jeremiah chapter 1. And my hope for this morning is that we can look at Jeremiah chapter 1. And again, I think it's a bit of an origin story where threads or themes of the entire book we'll see right here in Jeremiah's call. And so I'll, I'll kind of take us into chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 this morning. But the idea is that there are some kind of basic but important theological themes that I think we see in Jeremiah's call that we will trace throughout this book. Well, Jeremiah is a PK, uh, a preacher's kid, a pastor's kid. How many pastor's kids do we have here this morning? Well, the... This week, I was uh, in the office uh, working on this message, and Mary decided to stop by and uh, bring Elijah, our 17-month-old. And uh, 
Elijah is in a very active stage of life, and, and he is uh, growing into his identity as a pastor's kid. And so I was um, trying to get a little bit of work done, and I hear Elijah running down the hallway going, which is his word for watermelon, obviously. And so he's running through the halls saying, my, my point is that pastor's kids have a familiarity with the place of worship. And so Jeremiah would have had a familiarity. We're told in verse 1 that he is the son of a priest. And he would have had a familiarity with the things of the temple, with the worship of the Lord. But we're told when Jeremiah is called in verse 5, the Lord, uh, verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The first theological theme or thread that I want us to see going throughout the book of Jeremiah is a simple truth, but I think it's a truth that I hope we can let sink in. And that's that God is a relational God. Now, to some of us, that's kind of a common knowledge. Of course, God's a relational God, but for some of us, we struggle with that idea. As Alan just prayed for us, sometimes our idea of a relational father is sometimes a hard concept for us to get. Sometimes when it comes to the idea of worshiping a God who is relational, yet we cannot see, we struggle with that. The Lord comes to Jeremiah with a word, with a calling, and he says, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. This word knew is a Hebrew word we see all throughout the Old Testament that is an intimate kind of knowledge. It's not just the kind of knowledge where you know someone's name and their resume. It's the kind of knowledge that a husband and wife have. It's in relational knowledge. And I think part of Jeremiah's calling is grounded in this reality that he wants Jeremiah to stand on the reality that God is a relational God. And the reason that is important, and the reason I say that is a thread or a theme throughout the whole entire book of Jeremiah, is that the sin that is leading to judgment, that is leading to consequences, sin is not merely a transactional thing. It's a relational thing. It's a betrayal of the Lord himself. And that's why Jeremiah's message in chapter 2 begins with a story. A story of a young bride who marries her husband and they, she leaves her home and they, they go and live in, uh, across the country together. And they start their life together and they're in love and they're, they're set apart. And Jeremiah starts in chapter 2. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. 
he starts his message with the reality, we have a relationship here. And so when we talk about sin and idolatry that is infiltrating the kingdom of Judah right now, this isn't just you crossing some moral line in the sand. It's a betrayal of our relationship. And that's why one of the primary metaphors and images we'll see throughout the book of Jeremiah is the image of adultery. He says, you have left your lover. And so God is a relational God. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, he says that, I will pronounce judgments on my people because of their wickedness in what? In forsaking me. That's where it starts. Then he says, you burn incense to other gods and worship what hands have made. You see, our story did not start the day you were born. He says, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That God isn't some abstract, impersonal God. But he's a God who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than your earthly parents or your closest friend. He knows you. And that, to some of us, is a frightening thing. Because if he knows me, would he truly love me? And part of the message of Jeremiah is that even though we do not earn his love, he does not give up on his people. He knows you and he loves you. Before you were born in the womb, Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. And so Jeremiah is going to have a word, not just for the kingdom of Israel, but for the surrounding nations. As we jump into chapter 2, verse 27, notice um, what the heart of sin is as we think about God being a relational God. He says, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. The heart of sin is a betrayal. It's a turning from a God who loves us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he begins Jeremiah's call. Jeremiah, I know you, and I'm calling you to a purpose. And the second thing we see here in in Jeremiah's origin story or his call to ministry is that God is an all-sufficient God. Jeremiah's response to his call is, who, me? Why me? I'm, I can't even talk. I, I, I struggle with words and I'm too young. How easy we come up with excuses when God asks us to do something. 
And notice the Lord's response to Jeremiah in verse 6 to 8. He says, The Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. And then at the end of this whole call in verse 19, he repeats that. I am with you and will rescue you. Notice how the Lord turns Jeremiah's mind and his eyes from his own insufficiency to the sufficiency of the God who would go with him. And I think Jeremiah, as he is recording this, is is he wants us to draw a connection to that moment when Moses was called to ministry. And he said, Lord, I, I can't speak. And the Lord's response is, but I will go with you. It's not about what I'm calling you to. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's about who's going with you. And that becomes a theme throughout Moses' life and prophetic ministry is, Lord, unless you go with us, we're not going up from here. Our God is an all-sufficient God. And I think this is a theme throughout the book of Jeremiah as the Lord confronts the sin and idolatry of his people. It's that they are not finding their sufficiency in him, but in other things. Notice Jeremiah 2 verse 13 I think this is a a key verse for us as as we walk through really the first 24 chapters of of Jeremiah, our, our, our heavy condemnation of sin and idolatry. He says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. The all sufficient, the, the water that gives life. And they have dug the, dug their own cisterns. Broken sisters, cisterns that cannot hold water. The image that Jeremiah uses is you've got this spring of water that just will give you life. If you just drink from it and it's right in front of you. And what are you doing? You're digging in the desert trying to find water. And this is the heart of idolatry. It is not finding our sufficiency in the all-sufficiency of God. And so this becomes a theme as Jeremiah confronts the idolatry of the kingdom of Judah. They are forsaking the spring of living water and digging broken cisterns, cisterns that can't hold water. My mind goes to the picture. Many of us will will go to the beach at some time this summer. And as a child, I I loved trying to dig a hole in the sand. And then when the water comes in, it it just fills in that hole. And and, and, in the picture here of broken cisterns is no matter how hard you try to dig and find life outside of the all-sufficient God, the waves of time are just going to come in and show you that these things are worthless. They don't hold water. They aren't going to satisfy you. Notice um, the great exchange we see in verse 11. He says, My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. That's a weighty statement. 
They've exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. They're trading in their inheritance for monopoly money. Sometimes when I'm doing um, online banking or transferring money between accounts, sometimes you'll have an option. Maybe when you're taking money out of PayPal. Does anybody still use PayPal anymore? Um, You're taking money out of PayPal, putting it in your bank account. Sometimes it'll give you an option. Do you want to do a standard transfer, one to three business days, or do you want this now? It'll give you a little fee for an immediate transfer, Okay. And um, sometimes I wonder, and and usually I can wait, but sometimes I wonder, what would be the fee that that they could tack on there for immediacy? The message, as Jeremiah confronts the idolatry of his people, is that the fee for immediacy of turning to anything and everything to give you worth and meaning and security in life is a fee that you cannot pay. It's costly, and you're exchanging a glorious God for worthless idols. And so there's a weightiness to the reality that God is an all-sufficient God. There's a weightiness to that. And I imagine that you go on your online banking and you go to transfer some money. And it says, we have a special offer for you. Instead of giving you the money that has value that you, you have here, um, today, we'll, we'll, we'll FedEx it to you today. We'll get our Amazon Prime drivers to be there in a couple of hours. But we're offering you Elon Musk's lucky socks. Okay? Instead of your money, we're going to give you Elon Musk's lucky socks. It's a silly example, but I think of this great exchange. They've exchanged the glorious God, something of infinite value, the all-sufficient God, for lucky socks. You see, this is where the kingdom of Judah finds themselves. They're turning to the nations around them. Assyria, oh, they're powerful right now. Hey, they, they invaded our people in, in Israel, but maybe they can help us. Oh, Babylon, the Lord says they're going to come bring judgment on us, but maybe we turn for them for help. Egypt, they, they want power here, but maybe they can help. Yeah, we were slaves there one time, but, you know, lucky socks. (laughs) It's a silly example, but I wonder if we thought about lucky cars or a lucky raise or a lucky spouse, a lucky child. What do we turn to to find our sufficiency, our worth, our value, other than the all-sufficient God? Tim Keller in Counterfeit God says, When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it's essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. 
An idol is something that we look to, listen to this, that we look to for things that only God can give. And this is the heart of the first half of Jeremiah. Is that you've exchanged a glorious God for worthless idols. You have sought happiness, self-worth. And I think as Jeremiah is called, that's why the Lord turns his eyes from his own insufficiencies. You can't speak, you're too young, to I will be with you and will rescue you. Turn your eyes to the all-sufficiency of God. And so, one final theme that we see here in chapter 1 that we'll see throughout this book is that God is a faithful God. He always keeps his word. You probably thought this was a little odd when we read it. In verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said, you've seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now, when we read that, did any of you think, Am I missing something? An almond tree, and I'm watching over you so that my word can be fulfilled. This is one of those times where our English translations don't do the full picture. Because what we have here is a play on words. Poets often do this. The word for almond tree in Hebrew is very close to the word for watching. It's almost like, let's say, um, that we had a tree called a, um, a, a witching tree. And we could read this, oh, I see a witching tree. That's probably not a great example because witching has some connotations. But it's a witching tree, and the Lord says, uh, yes, because I'm watching over you. He's, he's playing on the word. So we, when Jeremiah sees... This almond tree, it's a picture, a play on words that he is watching to see his word fulfilled. And this is a theme throughout this book that the Lord is faithful. He's faithful to be a just God. And he's faithful to be a merciful God. That's what... um, He says in chapter 3, verse 12... Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer. Why? Because I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And as we track through this book and we kind of sit in the weightiness of sin and idolatry and finding our sufficiency in anything and everything that gives us that immediate help, rather than a weighty hope. As we walk through Jeremiah, I want us to remember that God is a faithful God. He's a relational God. Before you were formed in the womb, He knew you. He's an all-sufficient God. He is where your ultimate confidence and worth and value in this life comes from. And he is faithful to his word. And so in chapter 3, he says, Return faithless people, even though you are faithless. I will be faithful 
to have mercy on you. So I don't want to skip ahead too far. But in the middle of the book, we'll have a word of hope that there will be a new covenant, a new relationship. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together where Jesus says, a new covenant in my blood, I declare to you. There is a thread of hope in the faithfulness of God that though he cannot let sin go unpunished, he said, I will step into that mess. And I will take your sin upon myself. And the all-sufficiency of God is found most fully in the grace and mercy of the cross where His justice and His mercy come together. And so, as I was reflecting on the book of Jeremiah this week, I was reminded of a beloved character, Charlie Brown. Um, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And I've called this message, Good Grief, Jeremiah. And it's a play on our beloved character, Charlie Brown, who kind of always sees the glass half empty. He struggles with hope. Sometimes he tries to be optimistic, but he finds himself feeling good grief a lot. Uh, If you look at the paintings in the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo did of the prophets, Jeremiah's painting stands out. Most of them are bold and what you'd imagine a prophet to be. The other day I was getting a haircut and the um, woman who was cutting my hair was asking if I was working (laughs) over the weekend. And I said, well, actually I'm a pastor and so I kind of am working this weekend. And she goes, oh, that surprises me. And so I had to ask more. And so I said, why does it surprise you that I'm a pastor? And, And she said, well, I just imagined a pastor to come in here and be like, behold the word of the Lord. Uh, and that's how most of the paintings in the Sistine Chapel are, but Jeremiah is different. He, many have called him the weeping prophet. He feels the weight of his people's sin. And I've called this message good grief, Jeremiah, because I think in some ways it's good to feel the grief, the weightiness, the heaviness of our sin. How easily we turn to lucky socks rather than a glorious, weighty, eternal hope of a God who loves us even though he knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is the hope of the gospel and this is the hope of Jeremiah. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are the all-sufficient God. Um, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, um, we, we feel the grief of how quickly we turn to things that are worthless to find our worth. And so, God, I pray that you would um, 
maybe even now as we sit in this space, bring to light um, maybe relationships or approval. Maybe it's some form of success in our lives. Maybe it's finding our identity in a group of people we identify with. Maybe it's finding security in a a certain circumstance. Lord, whatever the idols that might be in our own hearts, we want to lay those down. And we want to feel the grief of our own sin. Because it's as we feel the weightiness of our sin, we, we hear your words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we hear the words of, of Colossians 2 that the debt is paid in full. And so, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that uh, though our debt was great, your grace was greater. And we give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's the twice a month we partake of communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's a time when we as the body of Christ here at Waypoint Church join together with brothers and sisters throughout the world um, in this sacrament that our Lord Jesus gave us. And I'm going to read the, um, the liturgy that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians. And I want to let it soak in, and then we're going to take a moment to pray. Paul says this. He says, quoting from Jesus, he, he's talking about the, the Last Supper meal, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Peter mentioned it, but in Jeremiah 31, 31, it's really easy to remember, 31, 31, it's a very important passage in the Bible. A lot of people know the Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. That's a great one, but this is the most important one. This is the new covenant that God tells Jeremiah that's coming. And Isaiah also refers to this new covenant, as does Ezekiel and and many of the other prophets. And Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that new covenant, and I'm going to establish this meal that Christians are going to do on a regular basis forever until I come back to remember this covenant that I made with them. And Paul goes on and he says, be careful when you take this meal. Make sure you've forgiven those who sinned against you and, and, and make sure your heart's right. And as Christians, sometimes I think we're in a dilemma when we come to take this meal because we know there's brokenness inside of us and we, we say, 
Is it okay? Should I take it or not? You know, and I think you should. Now, you should come with a humble heart, a heart that says, recognizes your sin, recognizes that we'll continually turn to idols. We don't have physical idols anymore. We actually do. I have a lot of little Nintendo toys that I collect. So people could say, we collect things. Americans collect things. A car is physical. But we would say, we don't have idols like they did at the time of Jeremiah. We don't literally worship a little wood statue. But we kind of do. We worship all the things, all the distractions of this world. And they're good. God gave us these things. But he called us to worship him first. And then through loving him, and he'll give us everything that we need. So we come to this table this morning. Before we do, I just, just want to take you, I want all of us to take a moment and just examine your heart. And just ask God, just say, God, what are ways and, and, and circumstances and, and things that just are hindering me that I think will fully satisfy me, but I, I need to turn to you first, God, and then you'll reorient my life so that I can be a part of the world that you've called me to live in. But God, how can I make you first? So just, just take a moment to just, just cry out to God and, and ask him this. Now I want you to exhale. Just exhale. Imagine you're just blowing out the junk, just getting rid of it, and just saying, now take a deep breath and say, God, fill me with your truth. Fill me with your grace. Fill me with your spirit so that I can live for you each day. And in that spirit, I want you to come forward. This meal is for those who have professed Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to, this, to the table to take the bread and, and drink the cup and remember Jesus, the new covenant we have in him. The, both these are gluten-free. Uh, there are also some stations in the back. If you need to, go to those. And if you need us to come and bring it to your seat at the end, just raise your hand and we'll bring it to you. Uh, these guys, if I could get the servers to come up. You guys will go to this station. You guys come here. Y'all go to there. Y'all go to there. Let's rise and take the Lord's Supper.
just succumb to them. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your broken body and the blood that was shed, the blood of a new covenant, the blood that gives us hope. Please forgive us of our sins and may we accept your grace and your forgiveness and go before us as we walk with you this week. Walking in grace, walking in hope, walking as people of the new covenant, people who know that our, we are secure in you. And we can live that out and love you and love the world that you've called us to love because you've given us Jesus and you, your body was broken and your blood was shed. We thank you for this hope and we thank you that we can go before you this week in, in that hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.